Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. We have a great show today. I'm excited to talk to my guests, and I'm excited for you to hear his story, particularly about the Story Church, but you're going to have to get that in just a second. This podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we know there are faithful churches to the faith once for all delivered to the saints all around the world. And we are excited to prepare pastors who are enthusiastic and ready to serve those churches. We're particularly excited that at this point in the life of the kind of pan-Wesleyan world, the global Global Methodist Church is emerging. We have uh, in the last six weeks added 150 Global Methodist um, students to our student body. So now we have over 450 students and we're excited to serve them. We are fully online, but we also have an in-person campus in the Jackson, Mississippi area. So we'd love for you to find out more about us at wbs.edu. Also, I'm thankful to my friend, Bill Roberts, who's a sponsor of this podcast. He's a financial planner who is particularly gifted with helping people who are serving in ministry to be able to think through things like with, about housing allowances and all kind of the strange things that happen for people who serve as pastors. And um, so I encourage you to look at his website. You can find him at williamhroberts.com or a link in my show notes. Finally, I'd love for people to sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. If you sign up for that list, I'll send you a free tool. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And it is a, it's a 45-minute video teaching session along with an eight-page document to guide you towards your process of going deeper in Scripture so that you can present it creatively in a way that connects with your audience. All right. I am so glad to welcome in somebody who I've just heard about recently. Eric Huffman, who serves as a pastor of the Story Church in the downtown Houston area. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Andy, thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. And I'm excited to learn about your podcast and your work too, brother. I'm kind of new to your party as well. So I'm really excited to be making this connection. Well, I have been a, a longtime fan of Unbelievable, and I'm still mourning the fact that Justin Briley has moved away. After, I mean, I, I have been listening to him for over a decade and such a big fan of his. And then I was listening to a, a kind of a random episode. I didn't know he's going to be a pastor sharing with a, a, a parishioner, or a church member who yep. has some questions. And then I heard your story and I was like, oh my goodness, this guy, this guy would be great, great for um, not my <laughs> podcast, but Wesley Biblical Seminary needs to be connected. I'm like, why do I not know more about him? So it's a real a real treat to hear um, to hear from you. Tell me a little about your interaction with Justin Briley in your podcast before we get going on your story. Yeah, um, I don't really know how the Justin Briley podcast uh, thing happened. I think it my church member, Grace Hill, um, emailed his show. Okay. wanted to ask a question or something. And then Justin said, well, tell me about your church and your interactions with your pastor. And, and that's sort of how that conversation came to be. And the episode on um, on Unbelievable was just me and Grace sitting and talking through some of her, you know, doubts and and questions. Our ministry in Houston has always been about since we started it in 2015. The Story Church, uh, the mission has always been to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. So we've got a heart for the skeptic. A lot of um, interesting conversations with doubters, you know, happen all the time at the Story and. And Grace is one of those. So um, she kind of facilitated that and made that happen. I've always, like you, been a huge fan of Justin and uh, the Unbelievable Podcast. But while we were recording that episode, he told us, hey, I don't know when this is going to be announced, but um, I'm leaving, you know, Premier Christian Radio and, and I'm leaving the Unbelievable Podcast and I don't know what's next for me and all that. 
So that was a huge shock to us yeah. um, to learn that. But um, what's interesting is through that interaction with him, we sort of worked on him to um, come as he figures out what's next for him long term. He's going to facilitate some episodes and produce some episodes for our podcast called the wow. Maybe God podcast. Yeah. And so um, he's already done one or two um, of those. Uh, we have uh, he interviewed me and Bart Campolo sort of one-on-one uh, kind okay. of unbelievable, unbelievable podcast style um, for maybe God. And so, yeah, if your listeners are looking for another podcast to get connected to, um, yeah. I hope they'll check out maybe God. You heard it here, folks. Justin Briley's going to the maybe God podcast. So check we got out. him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's on the market. You kind of feel like there's a, a deal going. Not that I, I've interacted with him. I, I, I'll, so this moment of personal privilege here. I've occasionally sent a comment or question in, and it, I love it when people in England say my name. It just sounds so much better. And like Andy, <laughs> Miller, we have Andy Miller the third. I can't even. I can't even imitate it. Everything well, sounds better in that accent, man. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> well, I imagine that as we work through your story about the story church, we'll get a little bit more about your church. But it's really interesting to me. And let me just start. Like one interesting thing is that. A lot of times people, and forgive me for using just uh, sometimes polarizing language, conservative, um, but like kind of like an evangelical perspective, people think, well, they're not really open to questions. They just want to tell you what you're supposed to believe. I mean, that's that's not what I hear from you. No, uh, I think it's because of where I come from and, and the trajectory of my own story that I really do believe the church should be a place for sort of um, those, uh, you know, um, hard uh, conversations that often are challenging, that can seem like, you know, we're allowing heretical things to be said at the church and, you yeah, know, sure. and yet we're willing to wrestle with them. And because I've just, I just think, Hey, the truth is true or it's not, if it's true, it's reliable and it, it's defensible and, and it, you know, it doesn't need us to protect it. So, um, you know, I think we should we should always proclaim it and project it with grace and truth. Obviously, the gospel is what it is, but we should also do that with uh, openness in terms of our posture toward people who have maybe heard a false version of the gospel or yeah. or maybe they've been hurt by people proclaiming the gospel or whatever right. reasons people have for walking away. And and, um, you know, I think I think the gospel can take a little heat can the bible can take a little criticism um there's nothing about our questions that poses any challenge to god so why shouldn't we as a church uh, be open as well amen yeah that, that's uh, that's the role that we take here at western biblical seminary too we want people to ask their hard questions and work through those questions and we want that to happen in churches too you know you talk about like we're not gonna just because there might be something heretical that comes up i'm if you were to come to some classes where there's small group discussions or if you're in a small group at a church there's probably a lot of a lot of heresy there, but it's okay. Right. Like we have to kind of work through that and like be able to listen to where people are before we can lead them to the faith once for all delivered to saints. That's right. They can ask those questions at the church where they can find truth and correction, or they can ask them at Reddit or online or at the coffee shop or wherever and, and just find more heresy. So why shouldn't we open our hearts and ears to the questions of of doubters and skeptics? That's that's sort of our take. Yeah. And so tell me a little about your experience. You grew up as a pastor's kid, then you became a United Methodist pastor, but it's maybe not the typical story. Yeah, it's a little different. Um, some of your listeners might resonate with parts of it. I, I grew up in the deep South, 
Um, the closest town was Texarkana, Texas. Um, my father went into full-time Methodist ministry when I was in the sixth grade. Um, but even before that, he was deeply involved at our local church and sort of became the uh, pastor of evangelism, sort of, and then became a part-time local pastor and then went in full-time. So I feel like I was pretty much raised as a preacher's kid from day one, from the get-go. Um, and I had a really sweet upbringing. I wouldn't change a thing, honestly, about my upbringing in Red Lick, Texas, where, you know, I never had to worry about, you know, anything really, except getting home for dinner uh, in the yeah. summertime. And and it was a really sweet, innocent upbringing. Um, I think something about that kind of sheltered upbringing did um, leave me a little bit um, vulnerable to the rapidly changing world, especially the world of academia. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think I was prepared upon departing, you know, Red Lake Methodist Church. I don't think I was prepared for what was waiting for me on my college campus, even though I went to a Methodist affiliated school. Um, you know, I kind of assumed I think my parents and others just assumed it would be a, an extension of my youth ministry experience sure. in a way because it's Methodist. It's us and um, got there. And about halfway through my college experience, I had for all intents and purposes, uh, renounced my, um, Christian faith. Hmm. Um, I still called myself a, a follower of Jesus, but I refused that most of those times I refused to call myself a Christian because I thought Christians were evil. I thought Christians wow. were the ones messing up this country and Christians, wow. especially conservative, rich, white Christians became kind of the bane of my existence and um, the source of all wrong with the world. And, wow. and I became a disciple of, I guess, what's called uh, liberation theology. Sure. Um, or sort of, I've heard it called neo-Marxist theory as well. I think that's probably more true than liberation theologians would like to admit. Were you um, studying theology in your undergrad? Yeah, I had become a religion major and Honestly, it was in the religion and philosophy courses that I became a, a, a heretic or an apostate of sorts and um, started denying fundamental things like the, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and assuming, you know, uh, that I knew more than the Bible writers did about all that. And and um, what really rose on Easter was the the church, which to me at that point was sort of a social mo social justice movement. Um, that was sort of spirit inspired, but in a very new agey kind of a way, all those sort of typical left leaning um, academic tricks and tropes that are uh, taking so many captive these days, I fell for right. it. And I um, lived that way for the next 13 years. So from age 20 to age 33, I was, um, I don't, think I was a Christian at all. My mama would disagree. My mama okay. insists that I never became anything other than a Christian and I don't want to hurt her feelings, but and she didn't do anything wrong. My parents didn't do anything wrong in raising me. It's just, it is my story. And, um, but I think if you're denying the resurrection of Jesus, that's pretty right. clear evidence. Right. <laughs> you, might have, you might have fallen away. Um, and so the, uh, the reality is I was still around the church. Um, it was, uh, it was the, I think it was my own politics. That was my guide yeah. more than, and it was my guiding light. My foundational principle was just my politics. And, um, 
as much as I could fit the Bible into that framework, I did. And whatever parts of the Bible that didn't fit into that framework, I just left out. So um, that uh, continued, even though during those 13 years, I was uh, licensed United Methodist pastor. Yes, this is the wild fact to me. Yeah. Like a... I, I find it, it really you went to it beyond going this undergrad experience for being a religion and philosophy and kind of being set in that direction. You went to a seminary. Like, did you get a an MDiv or whatever degree yeah. might be needed for that experience? And then and then you went through the process of becoming ordained. But you're saying you weren't a Christian. Yeah. Right out of college, um, went to seminary because I wanted to be like the professors who had radicalized me. Honestly, I thought they were the smartest people I'd ever met. Yeah. They went to seminary or some theological school. And and so I wanted the same. And um, so I went to a very left-leaning United Methodist seminary and up in Kansas city Mm -hmm. and um, pursued that at during that time, I was further radicalized into my liberation theology and um, affirmed in my own views. Um, And you know, it's funny back then, guys like Adam Hamilton and his ilk were the were public enemy number one. Interesting. And were, were talked about as being these sort of um uh these sort of uh these sort of empire driven evangelical yes. you know col- colonizers. Right, right. Um to the extent that, you know, he's right up the road from our seminary, but we hardly ever heard from him in our classes and stuff. It's funny if you know about how things have shifted in Methodism over the recent right, years, you'll right. hear how ironic that is. But I remember um, when he was on the cover of Good News magazine. Yeah. So probably in that same time fear, time period. Right. <laughs> That's so, right. That's so right. this is like kind of a shocking thing if you know where things have come lately. And so then looking back to that period, like you're working through all of these things, but yet affirmed in affirmed yeah in, and in, and in, in my credo work and all that you know i i was open about my doubt about the bodily resurrection and and what how i understood you know the atonement to have not have been you know anything remotely looking like a, a penal substitutionary atonement in any way and it was just you know it's all sunshine and rainbows and stuff in that world and and that's kind of where i the the only sin in that framework is corporate sin. And by corporate, I don't mean like a group of us sinning. I mean, like, like corporate corporations. America. Yeah. 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 Uh, capitalism and, and the like, that's really the only sin we should be concerned about systemic sin and things. And, and right. there's, uh, you know, calling out individual sin is just hate and judgment in that worldview. And that was my worldview. And, and the work I did for churches, then I was um, licensed and then later ordained in that as a United Methodist clergyman, um, I would, I, I led churches. I started a couple of churches, but okay. they were not, not healthy churches. And they were a, a reflection of my own heart, which was angry, hmm. um, rebellious, um, selfish in a way, but also self-aggrandizing, wanting to show the world how much good we're doing. So we had a soup kitchen we had a right. homeless shelter, good stuff, right? On the, on the surface, right. like youth ministry for urban youth that were sort of discarded by the world. And we did marches, we organized marches for open borders. We organized marches for um, women's rights to choose, you know, uh, wow. re- reproductive choice. We were, we, were, we said, and none of that, uh, I mean, 
I still believe we sh the church has a mandate biblically to be compassionate to everyone, especially immigrants and refugees and, right. um, you know, mothers. And, and so I still have a heart for some of those issues, but in very different ways now. But in those ways, I was just a basically a political operative with yeah. a, a robe and stole. Wow. I had a similar experience. Now, this might sound funny to some people. It didn't go that far. And so maybe why it was great that I landed at Asbury University and Asbury Seminary. But even there, I had this experience where some, I imagine you are about the same age, but this would have been like early to mid 2000s. Yeah. And, um, and while I'm there, like these ideas weren't being seen, there was a way that you could be an evangelical and still say, we're into various forms of social justice. And it, it was like, just went hand in hand. And so I, I came out of seminary and this, this is no this is me, my decisions that I made, but I looked at the ministry of the Salvation Army that I was leading. I was in Arlington, Texas for five years, and then I was in um, Georgia in the Atlanta area. I even looked at like the Angel Tree program, the work, work we were doing. I, I, I use language redistribution of the wealth. Like I was yes. thinking like, that's what I'm doing. I'm a, but I, I saw that through like a somewhat orthodox lens, but it was interesting. Like what drove me back uh, was realizing like how I could best help people was that when I looked at just giving people stuff and just giving them a place and like not coming to a place where seeing that there are people creating God's image with a capacity to be able to thrive themselves, that then started to pull me back to a more conservative perspective because I felt like, well, and then, and then I began to see, okay, maybe we need to be careful with some of this language, some of the language of what, what's implied. And then I, I, I actually went to Perkins in your area and that same, and I saw that language for what it was. And it started to, started to really lead me in a place where I was going back to some other principles. And it sounds yeah. like we did similar things, but you had a, maybe a more, <laughs> it was a more dramatic move. Yeah. I, I will tell you, I think, um, you know, thank God I was saved from that worldview because Toxic isn't even the word for it. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, I hate to say it because I know a lot of people I care about have this similar worldview today, but it's an evil, oh, it's man. an evil system. It's an evil worldview that is, I mean, beyond toxic. I mean, it's, it, it's, um, it's really heinous. And um, it is, I started to see through it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was seeing some of the cracks in that foundation that I thought I was standing on at that time that really opened me up to the conversion experience I had later. Yes. But, you know, I started hearing the people I thought were the good guys, the, the nice white liberals <laughs> <laughs> saying things like, um, you know, there was this fight in the Methodist church that's been going on forever, the United Methodist denomination right. about uh, human sexuality. And, and the real hang up from the white liberal perspective was Africa. And, you know, if if Africa would either get out of the way or or if they if we could teach them to vote our way, then we could have what the church we want. Mm -hmm. And I started hearing things like, well, eventually those poor people. Right. We'll catch up. You know, they're so they're so rudimentary in their thinking. They're they're tribal and um, unsophisticated. They're not like us. But, you know, by by the grace of us, maybe one day we can shape them into being good white Western liberals 
like us and i'm just i'm starting to hear it like oh i thought yeah. we loved africans as yeah. liberals i thought i thought we saw them as equals and we had something to learn from them and not just teach to them and and there was such latent racism yeah who's the uh, colonius now yeah yeah there was like a bigotry of of low expect the soft bigotry of low expectations is what george w bush once said in a speech wow and i i saw it i was like yeah this is racist mm -hmm. um and and then you know I, I i heard white liberals say things like well you know we can be offensive in our language toward the wealthy and the powerful and white conservatives or whatever because it's okay to punch up but you should never punch down mm. and just even in a, a sentence like that which seems innocuous i'm like wait so you think some people are beneath you mm. and others are but like by what metric when you say to talk bad about you know certain groups is to punch down you're you're suggesting they're below you or below yeah. us wow. somehow and i just started to see through and uh, that that whole veneer it's a really thin um worldview and it was sort of those questions and cracks in the system that i that i was thinking about as i went to the holy land in 2013 and that's kind yeah, of yeah so everything... let's get there this is interesting i i was so surprised as you're telling this story and i didn't know when i started listening that you're in the same tradition like in the wesleyan you know united methodist tradition and um uh, so I was I was interested to learn that, but you first started to tell about this experience of going to the Holy Land. So tell us what happened there. So I didn't go to the Holy Land to meet Jesus. Okay. I just want to make that clear. Like I went to the Holy Land because I had an opportunity to meet with and find solidarity with Palestinian settlers. Hello. And, and wow. refugees that had and were being pushed off family lands. Um, for the sake of, you know, these Israeli Zionist settlements. Okay. And so it, it fits with the worldview I was in, in a way, because, you know, it was a, a political fact-finding mission, and, and I was going to come back and give talks about peace in the Holy Land and things like that, from a Palestinian, pro-Palestinian perspective. Right, right. right. And I got a lot of that, but that's... Um, not all I got. It wasn't even the most important thing I got out of that trip. What I was confronted with in that trip was stuff that Blew in the face of much of what I had learned in seminary. For example, you know, I think this was my own stupidity and not doing my own research, but I had come away from college and seminary with this idea that there was scant evidence, if any at all, for the existence of the historical existence of people like David hmm. in the Bible. And you go to the Holy Land, it's like, well, that, that ship has sailed. Like David's existence has been verified, you know, for the last 50 years, really, by archaeological findings and um, a lot of the latest research. And, you know, his name is all over that land. So, yeah, okay, so David existed. Well, who cares? Whatever. But then you start to be confronted <laughs> with all this other evidence, like, you know, Nehemiah's wall and Hezekiah's tunnel and, you know, yeah. um, all kinds of historical on the ground, extra biblical evidence of things in the Bible um, that, you know, I had sort of the, the my doubts about the Bible had been my had been a huge crutch that I had walked in my liberal worldview with for, for years. And that was starting to disintegrate. And then I was confronted with the stuff about Jesus, which is was overwhelming to me. For some reason, I have trouble finding others who are as overwhelmed by this as I was, but <laughs> to, to encounter evidence on the ground in Galilee 
from the first half of the first century of devout Jewish yes. peasants who knew, no doubt, knew Jesus of Nazareth personally because it wasn't a huge community and he was somewhat something of a celebrity. That's historically undeniable. But to see evidence on the ground of these devout Jewish people worshiping a man, and not just any man, but a dead man, who, again, the most historically verifiable fact about Jesus' life is that he died on a Roman cross, and he was buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. Like, those are the most attested to facts about Jesus' existence. Yeah. Um, and if you know anything, as I did out of seminary, I knew at, at minimum that Jewish people, you know, don't worship anyone but God is like rule number one. Mm. And you certainly don't worship a man, but you definitely don't worship a dead man. And you absolutely don't worship a man who died under a curse on a cross. Yeah. And yet they were writing on the, the evidence that I saw was in the house church in Capernaum, mm -hmm. which is widely believed to have been the house of Peter. It's not certain, but there was definitely a house church in the first half of the first century. And that's historically, scientifically proven. Like it became a huge gathering place, um, whereas before it was just a family home. And they were writing on the walls, God, Jesus Christ, Lord, Je praise Jesus, Mary, mother of God, calling the dead man God. And it all came to a head for me then. It came crashing together, this sort of reality of Jesus' exist existence and the reality that apart from Paul, apart from the gospel writers, like on the ground outside of the Bible evidence of first century, in the first half of the first century, so before 50 AD, there were Jewish people worshiping Jesus after he died. And what in the world could have led them to do that? Like knowing what we know about Judaism. Like, and not only for those limited people in Capernaum to do it, but for the movement to spread beyond Capernaum, beyond Galilee, beyond Judea, whatever. It's like, what in the world could have sparked a movement built on such uh, scandalous uh, auspices? Yeah. Other than appearances of the man who died. Right. Post-cross, you know, post-tomb, post-death, like... I don't. I, I could not account for the uprising that happened in the church, um, and and for the fact that it was based on such a, a, a insane uh, assumption um, yeah. that that a man should be worshipped as though he's God. Yeah. So that moment then changed everything for you. Like, so you come you come to this truth. You built your life for ten yeah. years. You know, since you left Red Red Lake, Red Lock, Red Rock, Red Lake, Red Lake. Lick. Red Lick. Oh, yeah, man. Like French better. Lick, Indiana. <laughs> okay. I mean, you like you have a career. Did you have a family at this point? Yeah. My yeah. wife was a pastor, too. But wow. she's always been faithful. And I think that she was a, a lifeline and a tether to me for years. She was okay. uh, always faithful in praying. We fought a lot because she was she saw what I'd become. And she was ashamed of some of the things I would preach and write for those wow. 13 years. But she didn't give up on me. And um, yeah, we had a toddler and an infant at home at that time. And yeah, I texted her. I think it was like the middle of the night back home. She wasn't with me, but I'm texting her all these things like, my God, my God, it's all real. It's true. Wow. Like, and she wakes up to these texts and she'll to this day talk about like, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I just knew something crazy had happened. And, um, you know, I don't even think she could believe that I, I could be after all those years 
Right. Yeah, I didn't tell the part about where, as I was wrapped up in that sort of leftist worldview, I was also internally just an absolute mess. Okay. Like uh, just addictions and porn and and just okay. lust and ugliness and and so there's a lot that had to change. Okay. And so yeah, I was absolutely um, a- absolutely wrecked by the realizations I had about Jesus and. To the extent that I knew we couldn't stay in Kansas City any longer. I knew we would need a fresh start somewhere because so much of my reputation and identity was built around that angry, you know, despairing sort of dark worldview that I had yeah. been living. Wow. So what how do you then like you come back from Israel, leave Kansas City, start to build? I mean, you you've studied everything. I mean, I guess your wife might have been able to help you. Yeah. Well, I mean. So first of all, on the way home from the Holy Land, uh, my guide, who was an archaeologist and a pastor, gave me a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. There you go. And uh, I had never heard of Tim Keller um, wow. at that point in my life. And I read it on the flight home and was absolutely blown away. Um, and I think most people on the Christian left either haven't heard of or have just avoided people like Keller and C.S. Lewis, for that matter, and other people that make sense of the, the Christian faith. Um, but I, I mean, there's so much depth and beauty in those writings. And so mm-hmm. I came home to Kansas city, started preaching what I knew to be true at that point, which is Jesus is who he said he was. And if he is, we better take him seriously, including, um, we have to take seriously what he said about the Bible, um, yeah. and the word of God. And so that changes everything. You can't keep picking and choosing if Jesus is Lord. So, um, that was a radical difference. And I made, frankly, I think I made a lot of enemies, I guess, or disappointed a lot of people who had sort of bought into the the old me and mm. wanted me to continue that. And then when I came home and you know, it was hard, it was some of the hardest times I've had, frankly. But um, a year, let's see. Yeah, a year and a half later, we made the move to Texas. And a, a year after that, we started the story church in Houston. Hmm. So you're working through all these these changes of like your worldview. I mean, and you, you, was there a moment? It doesn't have to be, of course, a moment of conversion, so to speak, or was it, was it there at, um, Oh yeah. Uh, Peter. Yeah. It was right there on the shore of okay. Capernaum. I mean, I just, it all came together and I just, I repented. I kept saying, I'm sorry. And then I just, the, the feelings of total, um, just crushing guilt, um, coming up against this overwhelming grace was mm-hmm. something I'll I'll never forget. And um, I won't say everything changed overnight, although I do believe I became a new man that day. Um, okay. But it took me a while to work through the the stuff that I had been, you know, surrendering to for years before that. Um, but it was a it was a liberative process in ways that I had never experienced before. And um, still what were your path. lifelines in there intellectually as you're like reformulating your beliefs? Well, I mean, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, you mentioned them. What where, what else did you lean into? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think I went heavy into apologetics because okay. I needed it to make sense in my head. All of it, you know, everything from creation and um you know, I was all in for evolutionary theory as the answer uh, to all of our questions um, before my conversion, and I needed new answers. Um, so I went, I went heavy into uh, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah, 
uh, heavy into William Lane Craig, who I've become yeah. friends with. Oh, really? Houston. Yeah, yeah. He's preached at my church. I've been on the podcast, the Maybe God okay. podcast, a couple times. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, other pastoral guys like Keller and uh, others have been very helpful to me, but uh, did a ton of reading from like John Polkinghorn. Um, okay. Uh, gosh, who is uh, uh, Lennox? John Lennox uh, okay, was very yeah, yeah. helpful to me. Um, a couple of podcasts were very helpful to me. What is what are their names? Um, it's a husband and wife team. Uh, she is British. Uh, hmm. The name's escaping me now, but it'll come to me. Amy or Ewing has been a real help yeah, sure. to me, um, and several several others, but. Um, yeah, I've just been really fortunate that, uh, God didn't give up on me. Amen. Oh, Eric, it's so awesome to hear this. Uh, I'm sorry that we couldn't have like somehow got a Wesley biblical seminary flyer under your door, you know, in those days. Like we, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, have accepted it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, um, okay. So story church, tell us about, I mean, this, the story church is so closely connected to your story. So tell us about that and what's going on there. Yeah, we started the Story Church in 2015 as uh, as we moved to Houston. It was a part of a of a larger mother church, St. Luke's Methodist in Houston. Okay. Um, and it was just a crazy, I guess, success story by the numbers anyway, from the start. I just, the trajectory has been amazing. And then, you know, things happen, COVID. Um, and then we got kicked out of, of our mother church and left the denomination, all of that in the last okay, few whoa, years. Okay, whoa, 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 back, back up here. So, uh, so you got kicked out of the mother church. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for names. I'm not like, you know, and you've been good, like not saying where you went to school and that kind of, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. But you kicked out of your mother church. What happened? Yeah, it, uh, it was really sparked by, well, I think the bigger story is we were going one way and the mother church was going another in regards to the United Methodist split. Everybody okay, knew okay. it, but we didn't know what that would mean. And then even though I wasn't WCA or anything affiliated officially, I was invited to speak at a WCA event. I criticized church leadership um, at the time, denominational leadership for not prioritizing scripture as the sort of lens through which to view all of these problems facing the church and um, gave that speech on May the 1st of 2021. And I was summarily dismissed from my mother church on May the 4th of wow. 2021. Um, thanks to a friendly bishop uh, at the time in Texas, uh, we were yeah. given a little bit of a, of a runway to leave. Um, and so we were able to leave with the story. We found a place to rent a little old um, Church of Christ scientist that had closed here in Houston. We started okay. renting that and uh, we've been here ever since. And recently we purchased a property um, basically next door <laughs> to the mother church that gave us birth. Oh, wow. Um, so we're moving back to the to the to the backyard um, where we were born um, in uh, early wow. next year. I'm guessing that was um, Scott Jones, uh, the bishop that you're talking about there. He he can't, he just spoke at our commencement and uh, we had him here. And so we've really, really appreciate the work he's doing, the courage that he's demonstrating and and others, too, um, uh, who who, you know, really have had uh, maybe even his trajectory could have been the same as yours, but it's exciting to see like what's emerging. So yeah, Scott Jones, uh, Bishop Jones was <laughs> a godsend to us. Um, and you know, it wasn't easy. 
we weren't always happy with him. He wasn't always happy with us, but I'm grateful for him every day because uh, that situation could have been a heck of a lot worse. And gotcha. um, yeah, so he negotiated a way out for us. And now I like, I'm not sure I would change anything because of how ugly it's gotten in the United Methodist world. And, you know, we never had to have a vote to oh, leave. Oh, interesting. We just What left. happened? So you didn't disaffiliate? We didn't have to. We were part of another church. You know, we were under St. Luke's United Methodist. And so we just left. And I, uh, my wife and I and our other on-staff pastor surrendered our credentials and established the story as an independent church. Okay. Um, which was never really in our plans. Um, but um, but that's sort of water under the bridge now. It's been amazing ever since. You know, it's been full of challenges and a uh, little bit of heartache here and there. But man, I'm glad we're out of that quagmire. Bless you. Yeah. I haven't been, I, I'm not, I've not been in the United Methodist Church, but I've been very well aware of what's going on there. So yeah. I, I heard you talk about this uh, before. Tell us what happened after you, you didn't disaffiliate, but after you were your own entity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So after we established the Story Church as an independent church, you know, uh, around that time, we were talking to other churches that were in a similar position. They had either disaffiliated or something similar has happened to us, happened to them. And uh, what we realized is there were things we really were going to miss and our churches were going to miss from being a part of a connection. There were other things about being a part of a connection like the United Methodist Church that we will never in a million years miss. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we started talking about how can we, you know, really pursue the things that we will miss and we will need, like, like uh, conferencing as Wesley in the Wesleyan sense, right? Yeah. Not in not in the modern annual conference sense necessarily, but like holy conferencing and and you know um, accountability and uh, even more practical things like where our boards go. Uh, local governance goes to solve big picture problems. And, you know, when there's a vacancy at the top, who do our boards talk to? And can there, can we forge a network that um, could answer some of those questions or be a source of support and accountability? And so out of that came what's now known as the Foundry Network, which I understand you've talked to Jane Bishop about that. He's sort of a partner in crime with me in that. And um, yeah. so that's been fun to watch that develop. It's not... I don't think any answer to these dilemmas we're in now are perfect, but um, but it's been a real blessing to us. So support and accountability, that's the key thing that you feel like you need. Uh, that's not a denomination, but it's what a denomination would have provided in the that's past. That's the baseline stuff, but it's it's more than that. When we, you know, accountability when you're United Methodist just means they make sure you pay your apportionments, they make sure you don't take money, you know, as a pastor, they make sure you don't cheat on your spouse. <laughs> or touch children or whatever. It's like, that's basically the extent of accountability. But, you know, biblical accountability goes so much deeper than that. And um, pastoral accountability is so huge and, and important that it, it's not just about preventing a negative. It's about accentuating positives, you know, in a pastor's life and in a church's life. And so we look to resource each other, um, you know, with uh, ideas and um and suggestions and, uh, you know, we'll speak at each other's churches or we'll send a staff member to go and educate a whole other church's staff or whatever about something particular. So there's all kinds of ways that, uh, that that is fleshed out and we're having fun figuring it out. Now, this might seem like a straw man sort of argument, but I just want to like lay it out there because this is what people might be thinking, but they might say, well, you know, Eric, 
Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll was a part of a, a network too. And they were supposed to have accountability and look what happened after they were exposed and all those challenges. And now the church doesn't exist. Um, some people think we need more more accountability um, and that a network's not going to be able to provide that. How do you respond? I, mean, I think that's probably right. I okay. Think that a lot of, a lot of churches do need more accountability for every Mark Driscoll, I guess I could point to another, you know, uh, Rick Warren or some other person sure. who has managed to be locally governed and avoid some of the pitfalls um, that, uh, you know, that come our way. I, I could also point to for every Mark Driscoll, about a hundred United Methodist leaders that were not held accountable. Maybe not. Yes. Yes. Maybe not when, when it comes to like abusive uh, overreaching leadership, like, Driscoll wasn't held accountable for, but I don't remember any Methodist pastor being held accountable for not making disciples. Mm, there you go. <laughs> I know yeah. I wasn't. It wow. was just about how many people can you attract on a Sunday and how much money can you bring in? But, you know, if you didn't make a disciple in a year, no one slapped you on the wrist for it. Hello. They promoted you. Wow. So we can talk about accountability and systems and things, but I just think we need to we need to judge the fruit and not just analyze the you know systemic choices being made. Let's see, let's see the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, and in the Foundry Network, I'm, I'm re it's really intriguing to me because it is, and most of the people listening to my podcast are in the Pan Wesleyan world, anyways. But it it has like Wesleyan theology at its core. It has a a, a biblically focused statement on human sexuality. Um, tell us a little bit more though about the Foundry Network. Well, I think it it is uh, it's definitely Wesleyan in theology. Um, although I think I uh, had a lot of people in the Wesleyan world push back against that and say you can't be Wesleyan and locally governed like to be wesleyan is to oh, be connectionally governed i'm not sure oh, how that's much so of, arrogant uh, it's a little fundamentalist in my opinion uh, but but um but i under i am sensitive to the argument and i think yeah I, I i've already fielded enough questions and pushback about um about our theology as an independent church you know, and, and especially regarding women in ministry. I mean, the moment we left the United Methodist Church, we had a few people in our congregation start asking, all right, so when can we now be biblical about, about women in ministry and not having sure, women sure. in ministry anymore? When can we stop baptizing babies? You know, the, you got you got people sort of, once the denominational covers out of the way, you have people sort of coming out of the woodwork to try and um, try and push the church in one direction or another theologically. And so you really have to be able to stand your ground and make your case biblically for some of these things that used to be, you know, sort of denominationally covered, um, which has kind of been nice. I've been, I've, I've had the space and had to make the space to make the case for infant baptism in a way that I never had to before. Okay. Um, and I, I feel like was able to do that and teach a lot of people, you know, the, why we have biblically, when we have the historical practice of, of infant baptism versus believers baptism and the same for women in ministry. We, we don't do it in spite of the Bible. We do it because of the Bible. Right. So um, it's been a it's been a good way to stay sharp. Um, as I said before, no one at the Foundry Network thinks what we're doing is uh, is perfect or or in any way a good solution for most churches. I think for ninety five percent of former United Methodist churches, um, the Foundry Network's not for them, and we're not trying right. to grow it. You know, we're not really anxious to 
to grow the thing. We don't have a central office. There's no financial component to it. It's really about fellowship and, and accountability as much as possible. But I think a lot of us are a little bit <clears throat> denominationally scarred. And so that yeah. is sort of uh, charted some of our steps. I think we're so anti going back to whatever that was um, that we are um, a little bit slow to, uh, to want to get back into anything similar. Um, but at the yeah. same time, like we are so happy about the success of the global Methodist church, for example, yeah. and for churches that have gone free Methodist or churches that are doing the Methodist collegiate thing and, and, uh, thing out of Florida. It's just, it's exciting to see God working in all these different ways. And I think that's, uh, I think that's maybe his plan through all of this. And I don't think it needs to be uniform. I think we can all champion each other. At least that's our plan as far as uh, yeah. the Foundry Network is concerned. I can't help but jump back to a comment about whether or not it's Wesleyan. And I said, I kind of inter interjected there. That's kind of pretty arrogant because, you know, if it's really Wesleyan, it's probably going to be we're going to go back to the Church of England. Uh, and it, 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 there's really a sense like, like if you're really how far do you want to Wesley, take this? <laughs> like, and, and this is a bit uh, like I study the 19th century holiness and Wesleyan kind of world. The, the emergence of the Salvation Army came in that context. And there's all sorts of splits that happen. And, and people might not even know this, right. that like the Primitive Method Church started in the early 19th century. Well, I have a friend. Uh, who's in a band meeting with me. He is a graduate, double graduate of Wesley Biblical Seminary. He's serving uh, a church that you might not know it, but it's a primitive Methodist church from that same tradition. We have congregational Methodist church, evangelical Methodist church. Um, and I, I have on my podcast, um, two guys about our age who have like contemporary churches. They're called the Association of Independent Methodists. And mm. they're like, they're thriving, they're growing, and they're, they're growing in part because some people are coming their way, but they're planning churches. So yeah. like, there's a lot of other ways to express it, express what Wesleyanism, not, not the Wesleyan church, but Wesleyanism, Methodism broadly is. So I, I'm really encouraged by all of these new expressions and the biblical fidelity that I see in you guys. So I'm, I'm really like, I've, I've transferred my credentials to the global Methodist church, and I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm in a not not serving a church at this point, but I love the church I'm in and I'm thankful for it. But I'm really glad to see what you guys are doing. It's really an exciting yeah. time in Wesleyanism. No, it really is. I agree. I love your perspective on that, 100%. Well, Eric, you've uh, written a few books about your experience. Can you tell us about that? Um, or at least one book yeah. about your experience. What, what, type, what type of things are you doing that? I think as yeah. people listen to you, they might really want to check out the work that God's doing through you. Well, thank you. Um, in 2018, late 2018, I released my first book, which was a 40-day devotional for skeptics. It's called 40 Days of Doubt, um, 40 Days of Doubt Devotions for the Skeptic, um, which is just 40 days broken up into 40 questions skeptics ask about Christianity, about the Bible, about God, about um, social issues and things like that. Really short you know, snippets that I think are good for beginners. Um, and then in 2021, um, I released a book called Scripture and the Skeptic, which is more about, you know, how to really embrace the whole Bible as a skeptic and, uh, you know, somebody that might have more questions and answers about religion and things, but to consider the whole of Scripture as God's true and, and trustworthy word to us. So rather than picking and choosing and the buckets and all of that, like, like, <laughs> like, like the whole thing. To. Yeah. Yeah. Let's think, take the whole thing as God's um, story to us and yeah. um, 
and not discard any of it. So um, that ascription of the skeptic came out in 2021. And um, so those are the two I, I've written. Okay. And there's the, the podcast. Yeah. That's great. And, and, and the podcast is called Maybe God. Maybe God. Maybe, Maybe God, God podcast. Awesome. Yeah. We just finished our first uh, film, actually. We made a documentary film called Across, and it is about the southern border crisis and a Christian response to it. Um, I am really proud of it. It comes out on June 20th, and you can find that at acrossdocumentary.com. Great. Yeah, this is great. Oh, well, I always ask this question. Well, I, I try to ask this question if I can get it in in time. My podcast is called More to the Story. So I, I'm curious, is there more to the story to Eric? We've got a lot of your story here, but is there something that you don't normally talk about on your podcast, some hobby that you have or something like that? <laughs> uh, some hobby that I have. Well, I'm an avid uh, baseball fan. Okay. And, um, so that's, although I don't really hide that, I'll tell you my, my most recent guilty pleasure is playing this video game with my kids that uh, I don't think any grown man should play video games unless it's with their kids. And in that case, it's just to be with your kids. It's not really you to know, play the game. Yeah. You know, um, my my apologies to any grown men that play video <laughs> games. It's a personal opinion. <laughs> but, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. So I've been playing this Assassin's Creed Odyssey game, which is the most epic video game I've ever seen in my life. But it takes years to finish and so um but it has been the best bonding time for my kids and i they're both um early teenagers and uh and so it's been the coolest thing to sort of get into that with them and also my last guilty pleasure is that i'm i've become strangely a, a pretty huge swifty so my daughter and i listen to taylor swift all the time oh, and man. recently went to a taylor swift concert oh man you're in the she's cult. got me she, i'm in the cult she's got me yeah. all in man so. <laughs> that is unique <laughs> This might be used against you in the future. Okay, what's your baseball team? The Astros. Okay. Don't hold it against me. With a me. few cheaters. I know. You know, God said to love the sinners, right? <laughs> well, I'm a Cubs fan. I'm a. I, oh, I grew I'm up sorry. in the Chicago area, but look, my life is fulfilled. I, I yeah. 2016. I like so. this team, man. I I love the uh, Bellinger pickup. So we'll oh, see where man. that goes. Well, we can hope. Well, thanks yeah. so much for your time, Eric. It's great to it's great to uh, for me just personally to engage you here and looking forward to following you and what's happened at the Story Church and the Foundry Network. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Andy, thanks for having me. God bless you, brother. <laughs>